0: Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Everybody, welcome back to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas.
1: And I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and writer in Pennsylvania.
0: And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We invite guests who pick movies for us to watch, and then we watch them from our vantage as ministers, as theologians, and as people who just love movies. Then we gather around for conversation. This week, we watched The Social Network with Steve Thorngate, and in our first segment of the show, Justification by Faith, we're going to talk about what this movie has to do with life and ministry and theology and
1: in the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with The Social Network for this coming Lectionary Sunday, which will be May 27th, Trinity Sunday. And finally, in our third segment, Post Ludes, we'll take a second to share just another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading, watching, or following.
0: But before we get too far down the line, I want to introduce our special guest for today's show. Steve Thorngate is an associate editor at Christian Century. He's one of the folks who works with us on getting this show out to you, and we really appreciate him stopping by today and hanging out with us and sharing his wisdom with us. Steve's also a church musician and a songwriter, and we'll post a link up to his Bandcamp page on with our show notes. Steve, it's so great to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Hey, happy to be here, guys. I love the uh, love the show and uh, grateful
2: for the opportunity.
0: So today we are talking about, and I'm just going to own this up front, we are talking about one of my favorite movies of the last decade. Uh, I'm in the tank for this one. This is David Fincher's 2010 film, The Social Network, which chronicles the first year in the birth of Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg's transition from awkward Harvard undergrad to Silicon Valley up-and-comer. This movie was based on Ben Mesrick's 2009 book, The Accidental Billionaires, but it's adapted for the screen by Aaron Sorkin, and Sorkin and Fincher are interested in a lot more than the history lesson of how Facebook came to be. Instead, they're self-consciously telling a modern-day creation myth. It's a, a phrase that pops up later in the movie. It's about the most contemporary sorts of anxieties, like belonging and ambition and privilege and generational change, and of course, in Facebook-speak, friendship. And I freely admit that I'm the one bringing this movie to our conversation today, not only because it's great, but also because, of course, Facebook itself has been significantly in the news recently, and I thought that made for a good excuse for a rewatch. But, Steve, I'm curious about your thoughts. How does this one sit with you, and what was it like to go back to this movie with all we know about Facebook now in 2018?
2: Yeah, when, when you guys suggested it, I, I had the same thought. Wow, this is, this is definitely the right time to rewatch the social network. I hadn't seen it since right when it came out. Um, and my, my first reaction was, God, in internet years, 2010 was a long, long time ago. Um, I, I know in your, I think it was your most recent episode, you talked to our, uh, our columnist, Catherine Reckless, and went back to Billy Wilder. And uh, this, this feels like another, another deep vault kind of choice. Um even though it's just eight years ago, and part of that is just getting older and time moves faster, but it it, it the, the basic anxieties that the, uh, the the filmmakers have about Facebook and social media generally um they're just completely different ones than we have now yeah. um and, and smaller in a way but but just different there there's this uh, you know this this kind of concern about. Is, is friendship real when you have friendship online? You know, is this a genuine form of connection? That one's persistent. We're still worried about that. <laughs> um, it, it Maybe that the ship has kind of sailed um, on, on people, you know, feeling like they have any choice in the matter, which is a whole topic of its own. But also this whole this whole preoccupation about what's the business model of Facebook and how how does it, does it make its money? And, you know, yeah, it's an origin story. Um, but just see, seeing that eight years later, it's like, gosh, well, they 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 got big and cool like uh like zuckerberg wanted and they also sold a lot of ads like eduardo wanted and they're just kind of they they succeeded on both of their terms and they did what both guys were kind of afraid of and now we have this huge beast um but their concerns then um the the concerns in 2010 looking back at facebook uh are somewhat less apocalyptic (laughs) than now when we're we're trying to figure out you know, is, is Facebook going to destroy the social order and democracy as we know it? And is there anything that can be done to stop it, even even by the people who run it? <laughs> and that, that's uh, just how much that has changed is really, is really striking in, in a few short years. And yet watching it, I'm also, I'm also struck by um, the pairing of Fincher and Sorkin. Um, it's an odd one in a lot of ways, um, but it also seems more appropriate to me now than it did when I first saw it. I think um, because, I mean, it, no, no one would say, "Hey, those two guys should make a movie together." It, it, it doesn't—it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, but but when you watch the movie, there's this kind of, you know, this this classic kind of Fincher, just like a, this vague sense of, of unease that's sometimes better defined than other times, but it's just, there's kind of, there's kind of a, a tension and an anxiety to the movie. And then there's all these one-liners, you know, um, which is a, a strange combination. I can't think of a lot of other movies that, that have that particular, uh, that particular kind of one, two, um, all the, all the joking around that happens in this movie. That is, you know, the, the, the trademark Sorkin dialogue. And yet that, that somehow seems so appropriate now because that, that is my experience of social media in 2018. <laughs> right. Um, yes. Uh, you 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 come for the jokes and you you stay for the quiet sense of doom. You know. It, it's a, th- that it actually really really works. And and the thing that keeps me from some people say they can't quit Facebook because it's where they keep in touch and connect people they can never talk to. Uh, I feel like I can't quit Facebook because. It's where I go to see which of my friends are being funny today. It's where I go to like crack a joke that I don't know who if anybody will appreciate <laughs> you know and um, and that's a maybe that's a, a pretty small positive in comparison to the very large negatives we've learned about Facebook um, but but something about that uh, the the sense that that something is going very very wrong in this movie and yet there's all these great lines it just seemed uh, I, I liked that part of it better right now than I did. Uh, several years ago. It made a little more sense in retrospect. And it's not even just the it's not even just the the sorkin dialogue there, there's uh, there's funny st- there's other funny stuff too that that weird that weird scene where the Winklevoss twins are are rowing in their race and you have the, the what's the name of the greek uh, yeah. and, and, and the Hollow mountain king yeah thank you yes but but it's not it's not just that it's on um, the the nine inch nails guys who scored the movie they right. they kind of juxtapose it with this kind of dark foreboding electronic thing and the scene is just bizarre and hilarious even without without dialogue you know um so it's it's an odd combination of things but it worked a little better for me this time and uh you know the 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 sense of of unease in this movie is is so big for us now as we're so worried about um about Facebook and the the state of the internet and everything else and that uh that kind of that all seems to come back in a way to the way that that Facebook has empowered people and not just people but entities, as we now know, you know, um, some, some of them more uh, we might look more favorably on than others, to tell a particular kind of story and to make it be heard. And that, that's been such a, such a shift in our culture, the, the way that how immediately Facebook empowers people to do that. And that kind of takes us to, to one of the themes that is most interesting um, to me, which is just this theme of the, the tension between um, evocative narrative and um that 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 might or might not be truthful you know uh on the one hand that and on the other hand like an informative and accurate report of verifiable facts you know um we all know that a lot of the press about uh this movie had to do with the script and with sorkin's kind of um just didn't really seem to care very much at all about um about factual representations of what was among other things, a, a biopic of very contemporary public figures, you know, and that's that is classic Aaron Sorkin. He has always um, sort of been, at least expressed publicly, a certain indifference to um, to being fair to people in in um, in representation of facts. He he always says he's accountable to storytelling, um, which which I can kind of appreciate, um, but you know the, the the problems that that raises and. Uh, you know, early in the days of social media, people talked a lot about um, how are you representing yourself on this platform? Um, Is is it a place to be yourself? Is it a place to be someone else that um, that you imagine yourself to be? And uh, I think it seems like a long time ago, but it's easy to forget that one of the big Facebook innovations was that there was this expectation that you actually were who you said you were, which wasn't, which wasn't true of the predecessor, uh, Social media companies, and certainly wasn't true of you know the uh, the, the internet of the '90s, <laughs> um, and that and so that was kind of the. Innovation is too strong a word, but that was really like the presenting thing with with Facebook and uh, and how quickly it became clear that just because you use your real name t- doesn't mean that the story you are telling about yourself is true, or is um, is completely true, or is the whole story, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and then of course t- today, when we talk about Facebook, that this is one of the big questions. Um, it just because something tells a good story uh, or or aligns itself with a particular narrative that you find appealing or interesting or whatever. Um, what is its relationship with facts? Um, is it, is it flatly false? Is it, um, you know, is it deceiving and what it leaves out, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's kind of a big classic topic. It's certainly not new with Facebook. The, um, the relationship between facts and truth is not a is not a, a new thing or a small thing, um, but it's an interesting one, and it's it's of course central to I think how a lot of us think about the Bible, about worship, about preaching, um, certainly about something like the doctrine of the Trinity, <laughs> which is not a not reducible to any any verifiable facts in the traditional sense. Um, so yeah, that's some of my opening thoughts.
1: Matt, you're the one who picked this. What uh. What stood out to you this watching? Because you were in the bag for this movie when it first came out, and you actually liked it probably a little bit more than I did it on um, the, the first go around. I didn't really like this movie the first time I saw it. I actually liked it much better this time.
2: Yeah, so did I. Uh,
1: So what did, what did you see in it this time that kept you a fan?
0: Well, the, the more I watch it, the more I'm convinced that uh, Aaron Sorkin ha- has in the lead up to this, writing this movie or working on this movie, uh, watched Citizen Kane too many times,
1: <laughs> right.
0: I, and I and I and so I think this movie owes is I think this movie is Sorkin and to some degree Fincher's attempts to make a modern Citizen Kane, um, and, and and by saying that I don't mean that. Uh, Social Network is as monumentally important as that movie is. It does not have anywhere near the degree of stylistic innovation that right. um, that Wells was using. And so j- there's a certain category of, of importance that just disappears. Uh, but I, I think reading Social Network through Kane is really helpful for me because it, it gets at some of that that distinction between Okay. Yeah, the the reception around this movie at at the time was very much about okay, how much of this is true? Is this a, is this a real is this a real uh, a kind of documentary stance on how Facebook was born? Is this the real Mark Zuckerberg? Is this the real Eduardo Saverin? And, and I I just frankly think that Sorkin doesn't care about that at all. Uh, and and you could critique him for not caring about that. But what he's interested in is. Um, This character who um, becomes a a media mogul in the dawn of a a new kind of technology, the same way that Kane does, um, and and who becomes incredibly powerful within that medium the way that Kane does and exerts Mm -hmm. that power in ways that are both culture-shifting and also, for him, deeply personal. Like Charles Foster Kane just really wants to print newspapers that will encourage people to love him. And it doesn't right. work, and and Mark Zuckerberg really just wants to create a technology that will allow him to feel welcome in an exclusive club, and it and it never quite works, uh, and that both movies then so that then the Social Network is using Mark's ex girlfriend the way that Kane uses Rosebud right, as exactly. the like as the like totem, and yeah, I mean Sorkin has never been. Um, has uh, this is probably his worst film in terms of gender representation, and the women in this film are ex- entirely there to help the men reflect on their own, on their own anx- anxieties, and that that is a major problem. But one of them here is that she basically plays the part of the sled, right? Yeah. Um, who is the totem? That... <laughs> which is
1: yeah, which is a damning statement. That yeah, no, no, said. I'm not.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, aside from, I mean, that that opening. Of, scene of dialogue is incredible and, and, and she gets a heck of a lot more dialogue and agency there than the sled does, but nonetheless, <laughs> that's not that's not high praise. No. Um, but I, I think it's I think what he's trying to do is, is write something, and what Fincher is trying to do is craft something that is broadly about this nexus of ambition and 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 feeling um, on the outside and wanting to be accepted and also wanting to be powerful and how that haunts relationships and the cost that people pay. I think there's something broadly universal there that just happens to be set in this super contemporary moment with actual people. And yeah, there are consequences of that. But I, I think this is a very broad strokes kind of American story, which is what I, I continue to resonate with about it.
1: Yeah, I think, Matt, that the... This belongs in the the larger canon, along with um, Citizen Kane, of um, the uh, the American tycoon, right? Right. the the, the American self made man, and it's almost always a male figure. Yeah. Um, that includes Gatsby. That includes, yep. I think, newer entries like uh, There Will Be Blood. Yeah. Um, that are are really more about the sort of the internal anxieties of uh of the protagonist and the vacuousness of their ambition yep right that there is this there's this narrative that they are chasing that they are like deeply longing for that never totally fulfills them and it i have to say it wears on me that this is like at times this movie is about a girl right like sure like what's the motivating factor? It's a girl. Well, I think it's a little bit more I think Fincher wants to make it a little bit more complex than that. Um, because I think he's positioning this film as sort of like you said, in in this larger ecosystem of of stories of, of creation myths about people who made something amazing and world-changing and um influential, and yet them they themselves were um were unfulfilled and i mean from a theological standpoint it it's me trying to figure out like okay so like what is what does belovedness look like is the word that kept coming back to me as i tried to as i watched this movie like is i don't think zuckerberg ever feels the appropriate amount of recognition for the things that he's done but i don't think that there's enough recognition in the entire world to sate whatever need he has at least in this movie no of course Um, and uh which leads me to like thinking about ambition in this movie, which is, I think a pretty interesting theme. Um, ambition is not just about mastery, right? Like I, I think my favorite parts about this movie are when he's doing, when he's coding. Mm-hmm. Um, because you get to, you get the sense that he's actually good at something. Yep. He's not just a, he's not just a jerk. No, he's, he's incredibly not, smart at coding. He's, he's like he's, yeah. and he's, he's, He's smart about coding. like he's 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 genuinely good at something. He has mastery over a very technical skill. And when I look at that, i I like that. I, um and yet mastery um in our like in our equation of of ambition, always has another axis, which is the axis of recognition. It's not just that you're good at something. You want to be recognized for being good at something. And for me, watching this movie, it was seeing how his ambition was so out of whack, in part because the recognition of the mastery was never enough. It never would was able to balance. and um and for me, I, I think about that with regard to where our churches, about like um, how how we want to be good as ministers. so we want to be good at our jobs. But that's not enough. We want to be, like recognized at our jobs. And I see this too with the century sometimes, Steve, where like I write for you all and there are moments where I'm like I wish this I wish more people would like this on Facebook or <laughs> like why didn't why didn't this get like the Associated Church Press put out awards, like who who got awards, who didn't? And I'm like why does like every writer that I see who speaks publicly always puts award-winning? Because there are like a billion Awards in publishing,
2: yep. But the Associated Church Press ones are the biggest. I hope you.
1: Those know. those are the big ones. Those yeah. are the important ones. Um, and, and, but it but it led me to 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 also begin to reflect upon how my ambition and my mastery gets so easily thrown out of whack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think you're right to
0: pick up on Zuck as a kind of as as a as a master as a coder, and that some of the those, especially in the first thirty minutes of the se- of the movie, we get a variety of scenes where he is showing his his incredible competence, uh, yeah. just putting these sites together. I, I think the, the uh, where some of the most interesting. My favorite. I'm not doing this well. My actually my favorite sequence in the movie is right after the the opening credits uh, when he is first coding together face mash and you're getting the, um, the, the deep coding shots of him. Uh, he's just come back from breaking up with his girlfriend. He's going to put together this, this site that allows people in Harvard to go and pick which Harvard undergraduate female is more attractive. Uh, and because he's, he's mad about the breakup and he's kind of venting it on the community. Uh, but the that sequence is intercut with this uh the opening party of one of the Harvard exclusive social clubs, where women from um other area colleges, Boston University, Boston College, whatever, are being bused in um and then allowed access into this exclusive male uh college party. and it's such a perfect back and forth distillation. Um, between generational understandings of how power and privilege work, mm-hmm. that, that, that Mark has mastery over the co- code, he has actually an incredible amount of power in a way that the culture has not perfectly realized yet. Uh, but but those those boys are also um, exercising an incredible amount of power um, through the kind of an inherited uh, privilege that they assume through that that social club. Both of those institutions of power are treating women as property. Neither mm-hmm. of them are particularly interested in exercising empathy. And so to, in one sense, we, we, we look obviously at Facemash, this website that Zuck codes up in one night, and say that it, it is cruel, and it is totally cruel. Uh, but but it, that's not the whole truth, because the other cruelty is that the system is already cruel in and then through this, this exclusive social club that is, that is bussing women in. Uh, and I think that's a really interesting back and forth that helps us get at, OK, yes, what social media is going to do is not altogether pretty, and it's going to allow us to do things publicly and say things publicly about one another and treat one another in ways that we find to be reprehensible. But it is not a new—but those that, that reprehensibility is not a new invention. It's just all of a sudden not taking place behind closed doors.
2: Yeah, that's that's well said, Matt. And uh, that's that's my favorite scene in the movie too. Um, and I, I love what what you're describing of the back and forth between the uh, the two the two situations and what's same and different about them. I also love that that I believe that's where we meet Eduardo, and there's quite a bit of um, quite a bit of you sort of plot and character exposition built into their rapid fire Sorkin dialogue. Uh, Eduardo quickly establishes himself as the closest thing the movie has to a voice of conscience. Um, in, in that in that scene, well, Zuck is is coding face smash, and um, it, but I, I think the the main reason I love it is because it's it's exciting. It's exciting yeah. just to. Just to watch the main character of a movie figure out a problem and get excited about figuring it out—that's um—that's so relatable. And I was I was fascinated. I mean, not not being brilliant—that's <laughs> not relatable to me at all. But I just be yeah, <laughs> getting obsessed with something and figuring it out and having fun, you know. Um, and I, I was struck in the kind of aftermath of the original release of this movie that um, Zuckerberg's line he kept returning to was that. Um, you know, the, the filmmakers think that the only reason we would do something like make Facebook is to, to get a girl. I don't remember exactly what he said, um, but actually we like to make things just to make things. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's a great line. Uh, and uh, my reaction to it was that that's in the movie too. That was the best part of the movie. It was when yeah, the show it making things. Uh, I guess it gets overshadowed pretty quickly, um, but, but I, it was hard for me to forget because it's the best scene. Yeah, and it's, and, it's well, echoed, and, think- and it's echoed later when they have the audition
0: sequence for the Facebook internship. Right. When all right. the when all the the kids are kind of having the drinking game around the computers and and one of them is trying to compete to get the internship and there's a sense of joy in there too that I think is mm-hmm. is is really compelling.
1: Yeah. Well, I thought also the other parallel to this particular scene is the Larry Summers Winkleboss conversation. Oh, interesting. Yeah, um, because. He's Larry Summers is a, a very powerful person. He is the chancellor of Harvard at this moment, uh, or during the during the movie. Um, he was the former sec, Treasury Secretary, um, and he's a jerk. Mm-hmm. He's and he was notoriously a jerk at Harvard, um, and there are like no end to the Larry Summers stories at Harvard. If you if you hang out in Boston for ten minutes, someone will tell you one. Um, but they won't ever call it Harvard, they will say a college in Cambridge. Um, and but Summers comes in and basically says, buzz off. Like, I don't care. Number one, Summers doesn't seem to have that any idea about the the wave of technology and its value that it's about to hit the you, you know, the culture. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but more than that, like he is he and Zuckerberg are just different generations of the same people. They are highly powerful, ruthless folks who got to where they were they were by um not caring what the Winklevoss twins say. They, the 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 funniest part about this movie is that the ostensible villains, if there are villains in this movie, are these like perfect, almost Aryan twins mm-hmm. who are s- supposedly their their privileged, they're good at everything, and their biggest flaw is that at least one of them has bought into the orthodoxy of Harvard. Meanwhile, the president of Harvard has not bought into the orthodoxy of Harvard. Like The president doesn't care. He knows that that's just what you say to people. That's just to keep the myth alive. But really, uh, the myth is only there in order for you to preserve the types of power um, that are entrenched in people's offices like Larry Summers the chancellor of Harvard um and so it it's a really interesting scene to to watch that and juxtapose that with the first scene where like there are new roots of power being opened up and but that doesn't automatically close down the old roots of power as well
0: yeah mm-hmm. and i think there's i think this movie is doing a lot with kind of generational change and that's one of those places too where the you know one of the I'm not sure I think that the Winklevoss twins are the villains in this movie, and I want to come back and ask you all about that. But I think there definitely are lines drawn between folks who uh, think and strategize using uh, methods they don't realize are outdated, and folks who think and strategize using methods that they know to be new and upcoming. Uh, and, and and the tragedy of the Winklevoss twins in this movie is that by despite being members of the younger generation, they are playing by the old book, uh, right. and and the and in some ways it's the tragedy of Eduardo too is that he's on the cusp of this new thing, but he's he's selling ads retail in New York instead of thinking the way the new way that Silicon Valley wants him to think. Uh, it's 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 what. Allows um, it's 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 what allows Sean Parker entree is is not any particular set of skills but a willingness to come and and think along a new kind of generational alignment. I see that kind of stuff playing out in churches all the time. Um, mm. and, and we can certainly circle to that. But let me ask you all this: I'm not sure this movie has a moral center. Who do you root for, and who who do you who do you think is the who do you think is the protagonist? Who do you think is the antagonist? Where's the where's the where's the holding in the middle of this movie?
2: I, I think that Eduardo is is presented as a sort of conscience. Um, I, I think that's that's I, one of his very first lines is something like "Are you okay after the breakup?" You know, hmm. um, and I, I feel like from the start we're we're expected to 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 read him as a more humane than Mark um and I, I don't i don't buy it because their ultimately their conflict is a is a business conflict and um eduardo's whole point is that they should sell ads i mean if that's if that's the moral conscience of the movie um it's it's not a particularly inspiring one yeah um but but i don't i don't know who else it would be and i and i feel like sorkin is pretty heavy heavy-handed at certain points at uh at presenting in that way and of course that's that's the source material he was the only major player in the story who cooperated with the, with the writing of the book that this is related to. Um, And so that a lot of the controversy around it has to do with that. Um, But I, but I feel like Eduardo comes off looking pretty good in this movie. Um, And, and I don't, I don't feel like Mark, Mark Everett does if he's a, he's not a traditional protagonist. That's for sure. I feel like, I feel
0: like Eduardo ends up looking sympathetic but also kind of like a dunce. Like I feel yeah. like the movie mocks him for not being smart enough to figure out some of the rules. Um, even though we're sympathetic with him as a as a decent, well meaning guy. Uh mm-hmm.
1: I think that yeah, goes both he's, ways. He's, he if, if the Winkle boss are caught in the previous world, he's got a foot in both worlds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he did, he made all of this money by doing these like futures, by taking advantage of like Brazilian insider trading laws or something like that. Right. So yep. he, he is not stupid. He is, he is invested in, uh, in a new way of doing business. Um, he's a, he's the president of the, of the Harvard trading club or whatever it is, a business club. He's, he matters to the community. And he still sort of believes in the community, right? He still wants to stick around in these in these old institutions because, you know, like there those institutions have places for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Zuckerberg looks at those institutions and recognizes they don't have a place for him. Uh, there is no room for Mark Zuckerberg in all of them, and it's being and that gets that becomes painfully aware when he never gets offered a a place in any of these cl- social clubs, right? And so. He's going to go to the the to the newest best social club um, in Silicon Valley, which is, you know, the billionaire social club or something like that. And um, and if Eduardo's sin is anything, it's that, you know. He thought the center of the universe was New York. <laughs> right.
2: Yeah, I think and, the other. Oh, I'm sorry. Go
1: ahead. And it's and, and it and in tech it, it had shifted it's silicon valley he thought that madison avenue was the was the generator of revenue in in the country and it's not it's it's silicon valley it's all of this new tech that was coming out of california
2: well and that that symbolic difference between madison avenue and silicon valley is really important i think because i mean th- this movie came out in 2010 and we we weren't worried about Facebook starting wars and destroying democracies. Then right. we were very, we were very worried about it destroying newspapers and destroying traditional media. Yeah, that, that was a that was a concern that was emerging then, and uh, I, I feel like that's an undercurrent here is that Sorkin takes Eduardo's side because Sorkin is an old media guy. I mean, yeah. watch, watch the newsroom, you know, and uh, which I guess started not long after this movie. Can't remember what year, but same era, and um, it. The, the attitude is that, no, there, there's a way that you start a media company, and you do it by selling ads. Um, that, that That is the business model. That is the old way. So I, I feel like one of the traditional institutions um, that is really important here is traditional media and traditional media business models. And I think in, in that sense, Eduardo and Sorkin are very much on the, on the old guard side here.
1: As a representative of a traditional media model. What was see? that? <laughs> um, oh, yes, that. Like, how does... <coughs> How does Facebook fit into this now? I mean, as as you at the Century are are creating content, you're um, you have a magazine that you still print. You have an online presence that you still update, um, and Facebook is present within your marketing uh, strategy at this point. How is how is Facebook? I mean, the I think the in most interesting one of the most interesting things you said earlier was that like. Y- how did like eduardo and mark win in 2018 because facebook is about advertising at this point absolutely like, generates so much of its revenue via advertising
2: and and it's and it's revolutionized um, online advertising there's nothing like it Um, I mean it was so it was so telling in the um, when when Zuck went to Washington earlier this year and all these all these senators were asking like 2010 questions like what's the business model and at one point he he said I think to my must have been Senator Grassley or somebody like that Zuckerberg said Senator we sell ads. Like that was his complete answer to a question because that, that is the main thing that they do. Uh, that That is the model and it's made um, it's been so successful for them. The The way that it has, the way I would describe how it's changed things for us is that the, there, there, there is no longer a sense that we have an online presence and Facebook is one tool that helps us promote it. We've pretty much gone Facebook first. Uh, mm-hmm. Specifically for our online content, we're we're still a a print-focused publication in a lot of ways, but the the website serves Facebook rather than the other way around, and that's been a shift in just the past few years, and that plays out in really practical ways, like what kind of headlines do we write for online articles, Um, what kind of pictures do we choose. I, I guess those, those are the main ones. But that's what you see on Facebook, right? The the, um, the title and the, and the picture. And we keep track of analytics. We see how they're doing. Um, we repost things a certain, you know, we, maybe two weeks later, figure out what works best to post something again and use a new picture and a new headline. All of that is Facebook driven in a way that it wasn't even three or four years ago. Um, although we've been on Facebook for, for nine or 10 years. you know. Um, and, and so the, I guess the way I would sum it up is that I, we no longer exist on the internet. We, I mean, Facebook kind of is the internet when, yeah. when it, when it comes to, um, when it, when it comes to sharing content, uh, trying to get people to read it and uh, and promoting to like-minded people. I mean, th- there are no competitors anymore. Um, and so it, I, we don't, ha- we, we don't, put a whole lot of energy into paid online marketing. Mo- mostly what we do on Facebook is um, is organic, you know, uh, where we're sharing stuff and trying to get people who like us and follow us to share it too. But when we do invest in, um, in web-based marketing, it's Facebook is the main thing. Facebook and email, uh, if you put email in that category, it must be the two. Um, it, interesting that e- around the same time that Facebook was, uh, was uh, reaching the, the sort of critical mass that it reached um, in advertising, uh, email, Email marketing was making a comeback, um, so that's been interesting to follow as well. But uh, but yeah, it it my job has changed a ton in the past few years um, because I, about half of my job is uh, is overseeing our, our web presence, and I have some help with it, but I'm kind of the main person on it. And uh, it, it it's become I spend more time on Facebook than I do on our website. And that's it, that's how it is now.
0: All right. So before we go and talk about scripture, let let me ask you all of this. Uh, I'm curious what your top movies about the internet are. Uh, I I would argue that most of the movies that are about the internet show up as, like, B-grade horror movies. Uh, Because you have a lot of anxiety about the ways that the internet destroys us, and that's the kind of thing that tends to show up in the horror genre, the... The Probably the most well-known one of those is, is Unfriended from a couple of years ago that took place yes. entirely via social media on screens. Um, I, I fully admit that I haven't seen it. Um How have I? But, uh, but, but I, I want to I give it a shout-out. Um, this one is probably, for me, the, 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 the top mark there, but I'm curious what other ones pop up for you as movies to help us think about our increasingly connected culture.
2: Uh, it's a tough question for me because uh, I'll, I'll confess that I don't see as many new movies as I used to see in an earlier stage of my life. And, of course, the Internet's a fairly young thing um, and, and changing quickly. Uh, well, one that I really like that is not, not about the Internet to the degree that this movie is, but uh, to a certain extent, is the the Miranda Julie movie from, like, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, it was called something like You and Me and Everyone We Know. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um and it's it's about it's about a lot of things, but one of the major plot points is uh an online romance that a a six or seven year old boy develops with a with a grown woman um under a you know under a false identity. Um and it's a it's a really fascinating and it's really kind of devastating movie.
0: Hmm.
2: I haven't seen that one. It's a good recommendation. What about you,
1: Adam? So I I think the internet movie is a close companion or sibling to the surveillance movie yeah Mm -hmm. right so i I think i mean in in some ways like the conversation is its own beginning initial internet movie without the internet yeah and then that turns into a movie that i quite love even though it is deeply flawed um called uh, enemy of the state with will smith and gene hackman oh it's a great movie we can agree I on love that this movie. yeah and it is it is stupid and fun and uh and seems to get into the surveillance anxiety mm. that shows up with all sort of time on the internet and yeah, sure. the connectivity yep. and networked lives that we all live and i love i think will smith is like as charismatic as ever in that movie And, uh, and you get a couple of good cameos with like Jack Black and some other people. Um, but I, I think, I think that's great. I loved enemy of the state. And then there are other, I, other good ones. Sneakers is great. It's also probably a good surveillance movie. Um,
0: yeah, they kind of show up as like, like the first internet, the first internet movies are kind of hacker movies, right? So like the, like the urtext of that is war games. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, sne- yeah. sneakers, and to some extent, even the Matrix is a kind of internet movie about hackers. Uh, yeah, lawnmower Man. Yeah, I mean, there's some bad ones uh, like the movie Hackers, like the Lawnmower Man, or the Net, <laughs> right? And then I got thinking, like, like all of these movies are terrified of the internet and or, or our capacity of what we can do with it. And that's so why I was challenging myself to think of a movie that actually felt good about the internet. And the only one I can think of is You've Got Mail. <laughs>
1: Which is just an update of Little Shop Around the Corner, right? Which is, you know, which is like a 1950s Broadway play about, uh, you know, sending love letters,
2: right? Yeah, You've Got Mail wasn't really cognizant of the of the cultural sea change that the internet was going to be, was it? No, it's just <laughs> a little kind more of, circumscribed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it,
1: it it You've Got Mail requires you to want to get email, right? <laughs> which is like the last thing I want.
2: Yeah, email was novel. All right.
0: Well, we'll circle back and talk about some lectionary, but first I want to take a break and say how grateful we are for our partnership with the Christian Century, and I want to guide your attention to the great work they are doing. Uh, their spring books issue is out right now. These book issues are some of my favorites, and I love seeing what people recommend. Check out the website for all the suggestions. Adam, what are you reading? Uh, ministry, theology, Bible books that are worth recommending.
2: Uh,
1: I I'm actually looking forward to Anna Carter Florence's new book mm. that is uh, that's going to come out here pretty soon. Um, I think it's coming out in June. It's called rehearsing scripture. I loved her first book. Her first book is called, mm-hmm. um, uh, preaching of testimony. And then her writing is really great. She's a really fantastic preacher, but this is, I have been waiting for her to publish her next book and it's coming out soon. And so, uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading that. We had Mary Ann McKibben Dana on recently and, and her, her book is also sort of on my list of things to read.
0: Yeah, got it. yeah I was going to mention that. God Improv and the Art of Living comes out like right now uh, from Marianne, and I'm lo- really looking forward to that showing up and getting a chance to dig into it. So check out that list of suggestions, and if you are listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine sub This is the first time we've done this, but we are working on some cool stuff for the retreat, including, and I know this is going to shock all of you, possibly watching some movies together. So head over to Mo Ranch's website and sign up if you want to come hang out with us and talk movies for the weekend.
1: All right. Finally, I wrote a book. It's now available for pre-order. It is called The Holy No, Worship as a Subversive Act. It's coming out soon. I encourage you all to buy it. Um, I'm actually really proud of it. Uh, I worked really hard on it. So go over to Amazon or request it at your local bookstore. Buy the book, The Holy No, Worship as a Subversive Act.
0: All right, Adam, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We're going to look at the lectionary passages for May 27th, the first Sunday in Ordinary Time, also known as Trinity Sunday we've got isaiah's heavenly vision isaiah's heavenly vision and the burning coal we've got the portion of paul's letters to the romans where he calls the church heirs of the spirit and then we've got john 3 on nicodemus which is also a lenten passage steve as you look at these passages what stands out for you as inspiring or interesting given the themes of the social network
2: Okay. Yeah, wow! It's uh, it's quite a quite a set of passages for this Sunday. Um, some some very uh, very central text. I'm not sure the first thing I would say about them is that you should preach about a movie when these texts come up. But it's a it's an interesting right. question just the same. Um, I think the the lowest hanging fruit is uh, is Romans eight and this, uh, this. I think Adam used the word belovedness, um, but this question of membership and belonging and connection. Um, I'm not going to try to make a case that this is the primary theme in Romans 8. I think it'd be <laughs> foolish to argue for any one primary theme in such a rich uh, text. Um, but but it is it is beautiful uh, a, a beautiful statement of what it means to belong and uh, be a member within the family of God. The Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Um, that. That's something that that um, the, the Mark in this movie, anyway, could have could have used. You know that that kind of bearing witness with his spirit. Um, so there's there's something to be done there with a uh, with um, the the social network and uh, need for community, uh, Mark's motivation. You know his Final Club aspirations, all the rest. Um, so you know social network, social trinitarianism, etc. The the one that might be more interesting to me, though, is in John. Um, I, I, I wonder about this question: what what is it that can give us a vision for a new kind of life? For um, you know, the, the, this particular passage uses both the phrase "kingdom of God" and, of course, the phrase "eternal life," and uh, there's there's much to unpack there. Um, but but Jesus tells Nicodemus that uh, that being born from above is required to see the kingdom of God. And uh, uh, after watching this movie again, I'm I'm left with the question of what what gives us vision for something better. Um, to re- to return to that question of a of a conscience or a or a moral voice or center in this movie, um, I, I feel like to, uh, I know I made the case that Eduardo was that, um, but it's a very it's a very very limited role that he plays there. I think overall this this film doesn't really have very much ethical vision that I can that I can name. It's interested in business. It's interested in um, what what drives people apart and uh, and what what makes them want to be part of something more. But if it has something to say about what might be. Uh, uh, a better or a higher way of looking at, at life, uh, what kind of life we wanna live. Um, if, if it has something like that to say, I, I missed it. it. It seems to come down to uh, Mark's vision for for being cool and belonging to something cool versus Eduardo's vision for making money. And uh, it, you know, uh, neither one of those is a uh, particularly inspiring ethical vision to me. Um, but if, if the goal is connection in the movie, I wonder uh, connection to what end? Um, why do you want to be connected to people? What what do you want to do as part of that belonging and um, part of that membership? Um, and that's that's where the the vision that Jesus presents to Nicodemus might be might be helpful there.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think the movie has a has a lot of people who think that they have a, a vision for a new way of life, mm-hmm. um, but but it it doesn't actually allow them to escape the kind of basic trappings of of being cruel and feeling isolated and being mean to one another that are, are there in the old yeah. Harvard ways and, and show up in the new Harvard ways and seem pervasive no matter where you turn. Yeah, uh,
1: the new way of life is seeded with all of the stuff of the old way of life. Yeah,
0: yeah. absolutely. So a lot, a, lot, a lot of people who are compelled to think that they've invented something that they haven't actually invented. Uh, right. What about you, Adam? Were there passages that stuck out for you or, or connections that stuck out for you?
1: Yeah, I mean I I love this Isaiah passage. I think it's such a rich and interesting passage and was thinking uh about its first line. Um so this this moment of um of political danger when the king dies, right? So in mm-hmm. in the ancient near east, any any time there is this transfer of power from from one king to the next, from one ruler to the next, it, it's always a moment of anxiety. It's it's gen- generally the sort of the leverage point for wars to begin for sort of family infighting for uh, court problems to, to begin to sort of like seed um, destruction among the people. And when, you know, when rulers fight it's generally the um, the poor who suffer. Um, And so when Isaiah says like in, in, in the year that King Uzziah died, he has this heavenly vision. In this ve- heavenly vision, he's he's called to the to the the role of prophet. Um, and so, I was thinking a lot about what's what's called for in the midst of of anxiety, um, especially given Facebook's place in our anxious world and how it's been used as a tool of the anxious. Um, and what I love about Isaiah is that he, as opposed to some others, are is a willing prophet. Um, but I but the what he's given as a sign of his prophecy is so is so beautiful and and uh, I think rich, which is um, he's not given a raging fire to be baptized in. He's given this glowing coal. It is not uncontrollable. It is hot. It's dangerous. but he has some measure of control over it. and it has some. Sustained um, energy that it's giving off and and what I love about the this idea of the burning burning coal is that it's sort of made for the long haul It's made to to burn for a long time rather than like a raging fire. That's going to burn really hot but burn really fast and um, And as I look about like the the prophetic tradition in a Facebook age It feels to me that like prophecy on Facebook is about fire. It's about like can you? light the biggest, baddest fire, um, and so we'd see these big flare ups um, but they don't really strike me as glowing coals and I as I look at Facebook and this movie, the social network, as well as like faithfulness in our current age i'm I'm wondering what it means to do prophecy um sort of spurned on by the glowing coal uh, but moreover like. What I love about Zuckerberg, as I said earlier, is like when he's coding, you get the sense that he does really want to build something great, and so he does this long commitment. He's committed to his product. He's sacrificing for his product. He wants to do the work. And like the 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 final scene in the movie, part of I think his disappointment with the Sean Parker character is that Sean Parker doesn't seem to really want to do the work. He right. likes talking he likes the scene he likes being able to spout advice but doesn't want to sit in a chair in front of a computer and code and um and by the end of this i i'm i admire zuckerberg's faithfulness to the product and and he himself is sort of has this glowing coal he's like he's still present and and what's interesting to me about him as a human being is that like he's still the ceo of Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. There are all of these other tech companies where sooner or later, this young CEO doesn't get to stay the CEO. He's got to go. He just doesn't know enough. But Zuckerberg has been committed to this product from the very beginning. And to me, that that is a sort of a hopeful sign that I think is reflected in the Isaiah passage.
0: Yeah, and I, I think one of the interesting, the, the, the kind of infamous line in that passage too about being a man with unclean lips in a land of unclean lips mm-hmm. it, it feels super relevant to just the kind of social media landscape that we find ourselves in, whether it speaks from this particular movie or not. But I, I can certainly see a preaching turn that would that would take that and, and play out how it is that we talk about truth and how it is that we talk about Finding common stories and how it is that we agree on uh, the world in which we live uh, when we live in a place that so encourages um, this this sense of this sense of being of not being able to trust one another's lips and the words that come out of one another's mouths and the, yeah, the, the, the bully, circles yeah. the circles that we find ourselves in yeah. uh, and, and the way in which social media heightens and and. Perpetuates that kind of instability I, th- I think there's a, an anxiety there's a kind of epistemic anxiety in this text that is very similar in some ways to the to the place in which we find ourselves now,
1: in addition to this this question of of duplicity that's sort of at the heart of of the unclean lips, but also at the at the very heart of um of facebook i there is this psalm passage too, hmm. which is i think an appropriate um part of this conversation as well, Psalm 29, and it's just a, a short poem about the lordship of God. And um, and in it, God is is talked about as being in control of all of those things that feel uncontrollable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think it's appropriate now, as we think about Facebook, where Facebook has become its own monster, It, it it's obvious that it's not really being controlled by its creators any longer. Right. Um, it's in the hands of the world, it's in the hands of everybody else. And in some ways, like it is at the mercy of everybody, but also doing its own thing. Um, and uh, and it's telling to me that like all of the Cambridge Analytica stuff and that's that particular scandal, they were really quick to say, this is not a breach. Right. It's not as if they stole passwords. Yep. Right. Um, it was people mining data through available, though a little bit discreet channels that were set up in the site itself. Right? And now, using
2: it as designed, right?
1: And they were, yeah, this is, this is not a flaw. This was a feature. This was part of what drew them to this to begin with. And they recognize, I think Facebook recognizes that this is probably, this is a problem. This is a PR problem, first of all. But also this is a larger um, uh, problem about privacy and data and anonymity and a, a lot of other things that people expect to have preserved when they, um, when they go to a site as visited as much as Facebook. But I can't hear that, that that scandal in the background and hear also Psalm 29 that continues to talk about the Lordship of God, that, that God is in control and God is in control. and that, that even something like Facebook, which feels like out of control, what does it mean for us to say, well, and God is even in control of that. God is in control of these things that feel so uncontrollable to us.
2: And not even just God, but the voice of God. I mean, F- Facebook is yeah. all about giving people voices, right? That, that's been kind of the, the, the positive um, talk about it for years now. And now we come to see just who has gotten the voice on a platform from this thing. Um, and, you know, the, the the voice of the Lord is more powerful still. That, uh, the voice of the Lord can break the Internet, right? Let's hope so. Amen. I hope so. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> that, that'll preach, yeah.
0: In the meantime, check out our website at (laughs) technicolorjesus.org. All right, speaking of which, I think that's about time to to wrap up this part of the conversation and say goodbye to Steve But Steve Thorngate from The Christian Century. We are so grateful to have you with us today. Thanks for being on the show, and thanks for your support of the show, and uh, we look forward to having you back.
2: Hey, thanks a lot, guys. This was fun. Uh, great, Great stuff. I'm happy to be here.
0: All right, Adam, both you and I have a lot more we could say about social network. We'll have to do, like, social network part two at some point. But for now, we're going to go Thanks to our, our last real segment. all the fans
1: out there. Right,
0: right. The, <laughs> You're really the, the, into our show. The, the hardcore cutting room floor social network outtakes that you don't want to miss. But we're going to move on for now to our last segment. This is called Post Ludes. It's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that is not the social network that we are watching or following. So, Adam, talk to me. What's your Post Lude for the week?
1: Uh, so I want to draw your attention to uh, a, an article that came out in Wired magazine um, in uh, 2014, I mean, four years ago. Um, and it's by Adrian Chen, who's, I, I think, a really good tech writer, Yeah. who I like reading his stuff. Um, it's called uh, The Laborers Who Keep Dick Picks and Beheadings Out of Your Facebook Feed. Um, it's one of the more haunting articles that I've read in the last probably five or six years. Mm. And um it's not an uplifting piece, and it ought to give us some real sincere pause when we support social media with our eyes and our clicks. the The basic gist of the article is that um that all of the terms of service within social media um, won't allow you to place pornography or uh, whether that be of adults or children or bestiality or um, or like ter- like terribly violent acts on the social media site. And typically the, um, the social media site will scrub all of that stuff as soon as it gets um, posted. And the truth of the matter is, is that massive amounts of that, per, those particular images are being posted to Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all of these other social media sites on a very regular basis. And none of, the, um, none of these social media sites have figured out an algorithm to take them down. And so they rely on people to sit in rooms and check that each of the flagged um, images is indeed um, something that violates the terms of service. And what happened was that in Silicon Valley, they tried to hire people to do this. And immediately, these people would quit after four hours of looking at the worst of human depravity. And so what they've done is outsource this job to generally these large um, sort of warehouses in Southeast Asia, um, where we've asked um, the the, the the world's poorest people to sit in a room and look at all of the terrible things that people post to social media, um, and so um, I, I, it really gives me pause when I use social media because um, I, I have to question whether or not we can use social media responsibly with, while all while we contribute to the the very real and deep suffering of others on the other side of the planet. Mm. And so we've outsourced the type of scrubbing that all societies need. Um, there is a there has always been a person in culture whose work was both noble and terrible. Right. Who had to fight monsters, and in doing so, always became a bit of a monster. Um, and generally, societies and cultures found places for those people to operate. Um, social media has outsourced that to a different place, and we are we are making. Um, we are, we are doing real damage to people and we don't actually, as a society, as a culture, have to figure out how to clean it up. Um, so all of those people who were the guardrail, um, who are no longer fit for polite society, um, they're a problem, even though we don't see them. And I think we, as churches and as people need to figure out how to take care of them, which leads me to my second postlude. I'm taking two, um, chen's article also made me think of john ford's classic the searchers um this is one of the best five american films and i l- love it so much and ethan edwards who is the main character in the searchers um is a like horribly violent man who has been broken by the world and he is terrible and he never wavers from his violence um yet there are these moments because ford is a genius where we're Ethan has these moments where he he does some terrible violence, but then wants to shield his companion from seeing the violence. This is. Um, this is this like like slightly noble and slightly horrible um, figure of American and world culture of the person who has to do the dirty job, but somebody's got to do it Um and so at the same time, after you read Adrian Chen's article, um, watch The Searchers. I, I think both of them have very real moral, ethical questions that we need to ask ourselves, especially as we try and figure out how to live in community. So those are my two postludes. How about you, Matt? So I want to do a little bit of a lighter note on social media. Um, <laughs> anything is lighter than those two, mo- that movie and that article. Yeah, fair enough. Uh,
0: so I, I want to commend a, a Twitter bot. And I will put a link up to it. Uh, This is uh, the non-copyright infringement version of Tetris uh, that is being played on Twitter entirely via emoji and entirely using the Twitter survey function. So the way it works is that every 15 minutes, the Twitter bot will post a picture of what the board looks like, all the pieces that are in place and whatever is floating down from above, like classic Tetris. And then it will have a poll asking you what move it should take next, whether to move that piece to the right or to the left or to rotate it or to push it down. And then the the winner of that poll in 15 minutes, based on everyone who votes in it, that move will be made and 15 minutes from now you will see the board at its next iteration. Uh, this is entirely bot run and I'm totally kind of fascinated by it. If you always liked Tetris but thought it would be better crowdsourced with 3000 people you don't know, This is the game for you. Uh, It pushes a really interesting question about what it is to play Tetris perfectly, because, of course, when you have 15 minutes to pick the move, uh, you have an infinite amount of time. And in kind of old, bad wisdom of the crowds theory, you have infinite wisdom. And yet still, this game gets lost over and over. (laughs) uh eventually the board fills up and and the game is over and they have to restart and i find this kind of fascinating because you can go on youtube and watch like actual tetris masters play at unbelievable speeds and they do incredible so incredible speeds and they it, do it's mind boggling and they they do so much better than the crowdsourced emoji tetris game does consistently so There's a couple of things happening, one of which of course is that the crowd is not as good at Tetris as, as as you think it should be, given the rules and constraints of Tetris. But also that somehow inevitably in there the game is also still fundamentally rigged. That no matter what you do, you end up waiting for the long skinny piece long enough that the board fills up and then you can't win. And, and both of those feel like super preachable themes. Of mm-hmm. Both both that the, the, the crowd is not somehow as, as perfect at this as, as they should be, but also that somewhere in there, the game feels unwinnable. And I'm, I'm intrigued by both of those and just kind of in love with this conceit. So we'll put a link up, but it's, it's Emoji Tetra, and I, I commend it to you as a nice break amidst all of the other doom and gloom that may haunt your Twitter feed the way it haunts mine.
1: And that about wraps it up for this episode. We wanna let you know that this is going to be our final episode of the spring season. We're gonna take a little bit of break. Um, we'll probably have some periodic and sporadic posts uh, during the summer and then we'll come back for another season starting in uh, starting in the fall. But uh, we really appreciate all of the guests that we've had on and all of the amazing insight that they've provided for us over the course of this year. Um, If you have uh, movies that you want to suggest, if you have guests that you want to suggest, this is the time where we do a lot of planning for the show going forward, and we'd love to hear your suggestions. Uh, Also, if you've liked the show and you haven't had a chance to leave a rating, please go rate it on iTunes or come to The Christian Century and let them know that you love the show. Um, We love getting feedback. It helps us with the show. It helps us um, figure out what we're going to do next. so, drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page of Technical or Jesus. Uh, special thanks, always, to our friends at the Christian Century. Steve Thorngate has been amazing for us. He's uh, he's been really supportive of the show over the over the course of this year, and we've we've loved being at the Century and all of the good publicity that they've done for the show. Um, if you haven't had a chance to pick up all of the good things they're doing, please do. Um, finally. Um, there's also like so many other people who who support this. We are friends and um, and listeners uh, who who send us emails telling us that they love the show. All of that means a lot to us. Garrett Moskowski has been amazing for us and and always. Our music was uh, composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. He is uh, he's an incredible musician. He actually does have a real band. I make up new band names for him every week. But what? Um, his, <laughs> yes. He actually has a real band it's called Kiev you should actually listen to their music um but thank you everyone for the, uh for listening to the show and we'll be back really soon thanks Matt thanks Adam